Again, welcome to Grace Point. First time with us. Uh, hope it's not your last. Hopefully that you will come and be a part. If you're visiting from out of town, uh, you listen to Church Alive's worth a drive, okay? So uh, hopefully you can make it back uh, soon. But anyway, glad to have you. We're in this uh, kind of wrapping up, getting close anyway, a couple more weeks, two, three more weeks, that we're in this series called Chase. And uh, I don't want to give you the, any indication that it's like a novel or a book that you're going to put on the shelf. Uh, if in any way you think, okay, the series is going to wrap up, we're going to go on to rainbows and butterflies and talk about some other stuff, uh, that's not. And that's not the case. This concept, this idea, this, this ethos, if you will, of the chase is something that I pray is a forever pursuit for you, that, that it is one of those that you're constantly pursuing and constantly challenging yourself and constantly pressing ahead, and that this is just the beginning, call it that, the beginning of the race, the beginning of the chase in, in the whole process. In fact, w- w- even though we're finishing chase soon, we're going to go on into a, steer- a series, uh, a verse by verse through the book of Colossians, and it's called Evolve, and the whole idea there is where is God, if I'm pursuing Christ, where is He changing me to? Okay, where is he taking me to? Because it's about transformation. That's where we're going to be going. So this is a theme that we're going to carry with. In fact, this week, the women's ministry will be kicking off a study uh, in, on the, on the, using the very title, Chase. Okay, so if you're wanting to continue in, uh, from a, maybe even a different angle, uh, the, the concept to talk about, the, the, the dive into pursuing Christ and what he wants to do in your life, then ladies, I encourage you to go online, sign up, look, look for that online. It'll be a great opportunity for you to dive a little deeper. But I want to pick up where I left off last week. So sorry if you weren't here and you missed it. Go online, listen to the message or whatever. But we're going to pick up right where we left off. where We started talking last week about this intentional discipleship plan. And you can go directly to our website. You can download it. We have them scattered around the campus. If you want to find one, a hard copy, if you're still in the paper age and you're in the digital age, you can go online and fill it out. Whatever is your modus operandum, find it, complete it. It's not a to-do list, though, okay? Understand this. The feeling, the, the, the intention of it is that you would get in a quiet place, get alone with God... I know parents or, 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 or moms or dads that like have lots of kids running around. You think, yes, I'm looking for that place. Where is that place at? And so anyway, find that place, create that space, probably what you're going to have to do, and get still. And listen. Ask questions instead of telling God what. Ask Him the questions and let God speak into your heart. He does talk. He still talks today and he still talks in so many different ways and incredible. And he wants to speak into your life. And you do this when you get still, get intentional, find that selah, that, that moment of, of pause in your life and lean in and listen. We, we've talked about, or you've heard it said before, begin with the end in mind. Pretty much what this intentional discipleship plan is, is where you get along with God, God speaks into your life, you write out your plan. It's not something that's pre prepackaged, prefabricated for you. It's not that my plan is going to be your plan and your plan is going to be their plan. It's like you're going to get along with God. God's going to speak to you. He's going to give you your, your direction for the next three months. 
From now until the end of 2017, think about that. How intentional could you be in your walk with God from now until the end of this year? And then we will revisit it again in 2017 and we'll start the new year with a new series of messages. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to come back and we're going to talk about the IDP, the Intentional Discipleship Plan. And so hopefully you'll be able to say, hey, you know what, God, you took me from here to there. I took three steps forward. I want to take four steps forward this next time. But you've got to be intentional now. You've got to make plans now. You've got to begin with the end in mind now. You've got to own your own faith. That's the essence of this entire series is that we're not going to be able to spoon feed you. We're not going to be able to make you a disciple of Christ, but you will choose to enter the, respond to the invitation to follow me, Jesus said. You will choose that. You will follow that. You will go with him and you will pursue him with a hot heart and you'll long for him. And it's going to be mystical, it's going to be spiritual, it's going to be something that some of y'all have never done before in your life, but it's going to be life transforming. And we have talked about this, and so I want to reiterate it. That and, 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 well, I, let, me, let me start with this question. Is your plan, are you, are you, are you, are you a disciple in reality or are you a disciple in theory? Are you intentionally doing this or are you just accidentally becoming a disciple of Christ? To, to be a follower of Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. And to be a disciple means you make disciples. Any, any, any form of discipleship that does not put you in a position where you're making disciples means you have a misinformed, broken discipleship paradigm. If you're not a disciple who makes disciples, then I beg the question, please show me in scripture where that model is presented. It doesn't exist. You've got a virus in your software. You've got a corruption. You've got a malware. You've got something going on in your discipleship paradigm because to be a disciple means I'm following Jesus and I'm not quite like Jesus, so therefore I'm being transformed and becoming more and more like him. But by the way, I'm bringing other people along with me. I'm doing it in intentional fashion. So, is my plan make me a disciple or is it just I like the theory of being a disciple? Let me give you a couple examples. So, so uh, if you don't mind, uh, just appease my history geekness inside of me, okay? I'm a history buff. I love history. I like studying history. I like reading history and learning from history. And so I want to tell you about two names. A guy by the name of George Whitfield and a guy by the name of John Wesley. Okay, we're gonna, I want to tell you a little bit of a history. They had these really cool wigs that they wore back then and funny looking ties. And so I want to talk about these guys. Okay, just for quickly, just again, just let me be nerdy for a moment. Uh, so these two guys were contemporaries. These two guys grew up side, well, not side by side, but they grew up kind of in the, in the, in the same era and they lived in the same area. They actually went to the same school. They were actually in the same Bible study together at one time. Neither of them, though they were in the same Bible study, were believers at the same time. They were believers while they were in the Bible study, which to me tells me they were a couple of dudes looking for a couple of girls, and they were in a Bible study trying to find them. But anyway, in the process after that, they actually become followers of Jesus. 
And so it's kind of cool that they're both walking with God after those years of being in a Bible study together, and they accomplished, God just somehow came all over these two guys, Wesley and Whitfield, and just in a major way used them to awaken a revival awakening. They call it the Great Awakening, the First Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. This is the First Great Awakening that swept across the colonies in the 1700s. I mean, shook the foundation of the nation and its embryonic stage to its core in a very healthy spiritual manner. Now, there were other figures at play here, Jonathan Edwards and so forth, but I just want to focus on these two. These two contemporaries, they both had transatlantic ministries, both in Europe and in America. Though Whitfield probably had the greatest um, splash in the water, if you will, biggest transatlantic uh, ministry when you compare the two, there were some differences. Calvinism was, was a part of Whitfield and Arminianism was a part of Wesley. And so there was theological uh, differences that they did not agree with or, or on the same page, but they were incredible people. Let me tell you first of all about Whitfield. In fact, and let, me, let me see a show of hands. How many of y'all have ever heard of George Whitfield? Keep your hands up. Okay. Now, how many of y'all have ever heard of John Wesley? Significant number of difference. Hang on to that, that image that you just saw across this room. So let's talk about Whitfield. Whitfield, in the papers of that day, was considered the marvel of his age. He was an incredible speaker, incredible presenter. He was an incredible preacher. He was an incredible deliverer of the message. It's, it's, it's estimated that in his time, from, from the age of 21 to the age of 56 when he passes away, that he preaches 18,000 messages in his lifetime. An incredible orator, an incredible presenter of the gospel. C.H. Spurgeon, who was considered the prince of preachers, uh, uh, a Baptist pastor in England, said it like this, Whitfield was alive. Other men seemed to be only half alive, but Whitfield was all life. He was fire, he was wing, he was force. That's how the prince of preachers describes George Whitfield. It's incredible Preacher, orator, in fact, just to bring it down to a very tangible way, how many of y'all have ever visited the city of Boston? Okay, a handful of you guys. Okay, so if you've ever gone to Boston, I probably guess you've gone to the Boston Commons. It's like the big central park of Boston. It's a big park. It's not as big as Central Park, but it's a very large park. You can't see from one end to the other outside of seeing the high rises. It's that big, the length and the span of it. There was one time that... It's the very last message, evidently, that George Whitfield ever preached was in the Boston Commons. And it's estimated, listen to this, that 23,000 people were in the Boston Commons and heard, 23,000 without a PA system, was able to hear George Whitfield preach an incredible message. 23,000 people. It was at that time and for many years thereafter the largest gathering in the Boston Commons that ever gathered in the Boston Commons for a number of years. You take a tour of the Boston Commons as I did two years ago. You take a tour of the Boston Commons and you ask them about the Boston Commons, the history of the Boston Commons, and what was the biggest meeting that ever met in the Boston Commons, and they will not even mention George Whitfield. You ask the tour guide, who is George Whitfield? What did he ever do here? They may or may not even know his name. 
Because the interesting thing about George Whitfield, though he was a major player and God used him in incredible ways, and many people came to faith in Jesus, there's only one thing to this day that's still standing that George Whitfield founded. It's an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia. In fact, historians estimate that within 100 years of his death, nobody really remembers George Whitfield anymore. John Wesley, however, what about him? It's estimated that in the decade that, or in the year that he died, that there were 60,000 people who were believing the theological direction and practices of John Wesley. 60,000. And that 10 years later, there were 90,000. And that 10 years after that, there was over 100,000 people following the teachings and the directions of this man named John Wesley. To the point that today, if you were to add them up, there would be tens of millions of people who could point their faith journey back to a Methodist church somewhere, somewhere on some dotted hillside or country town or or a Wesleyan church here or some belief here that they can trace their spiritual pilgrimage back to a man named John Wesley. Now, what's the difference in the two guys? John Wesley approached ministry a little differently. They were both great preachers, great orators, but John Wesley took discipleship seriously. In fact, he took discipleship seriously. The the, the historians say that there were many on-ramps in his discipleship processes, many ways you can walk with God and learn about walking with God. One of the most common, one of the most popular ways that to this day is still being used are his accountability questions that he gave. He would ask his accountability, one another brothers, these questions. He would encourage them to ask their friends and, and, and so on and so forth. They would perpetuate themselves from one generation to the next. 21 different questions would they ask one another in their accountability, one another relationships. I know of people to this day that use these same 21 accountability questions to this day. Here's three of the 21. Do I pray about money I spend? Now, that's a worthy one. Do I get to bed on time and get up on time? Do I disobey God in anything? You can Google the rest of them. It'd be worth integrating into your own spiritual formation, having a one another brother or sister in your life who would ask you the tough questions of life. Do you go to bed on time? Do you get up on time? Do you spend your money the way you should? Are you disobeying God in any way? See, that's spiritual formation. That's discipleship where we're living life and pouring into each other. But it was not only that. He had these lecture libraries where what he would do is he would take and read through different books uh, that he would find that were theologically and stimulating and spiritually and stimulating, and he would gather out chapters from them, and he would put those into to a library and the itinerant pastors as they're traveling through the countrysides preaching all around, they would then take the, the library, they'd go to a leadership library and they would read from what he had learned. Then they would go out and preach it. People like Asbury, whose Asbury Seminary is now founded. Seminaries have been founded based on the processes and the, and the discipleship processes. What's the difference in these two great men of God? They were both men of God. One man helped, both men helped many people come to faith in Christ. Both men walked with God. Both men wanted to change the world. But one man had a plan and lived it. And made sure the next generation lived it. See, 
If you think about your spiritual journey as a cluster of grapes on a vine, you can grow grapes on a vine and not have it on a trellis, not have it on any kind of contraption that would help it grow. You can do that. And as long as the grapes aren't too heavy, as long as there's not too much wind, as long as there's not too much a storm, as long as there's not too much pressing against the grapes, the grapes will grow or they may fall to the ground and then you can pick them up and eat them before maybe the, the animals or they rot on the ground. You can do that. And at the end of your life, you will have a cluster of grapes. Or you can have a trellis. You can have a system. You can have a plan. You can be intentional about your plan. And you can feed a nation. You can change lives forever if you have a plan. And if you live that plan with great intentionality. Jesus had a plan that he wanted to raise up a group of followers. And it wasn't, listen, you know this, it wasn't in the quality of his followers, but it was in the quality of their following that made the difference and the quality of who they were following. Take your Bibles and open to the Gospel of John. John 13. I hope that this week you will make time and you will work on an intentional discipleship plan. I'm not trying to give you busy work. I'm trying to make sure that you're not just a cluster of grapes that makes it until the next windy storm comes along, but that you have a trellis, a plan, a process in place that not only that you will be strong, but the next generation will be strong. See, when Jesus raised up his disciples, his intent all along wasn't a one generation, one and done kind of thing. He said this in Luke 6, 4, when you're fully trained, you'll be like your teacher. You'll be like your teacher. So Jesus had a plan to see life transformation happen in them, that they would be changed. But if you're like him, then you're going to help change other people's lives and you're going to help invest in other people's lives and you're going to be a disciple who makes disciples. And this is a beautiful thing. So I want to ask you this question that I keep coming back to. Are you following Jesus in theory or in reality? Because if you're following him in, theory, in reality, there will be a marked difference. Let's get the context of where we're at. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, now that's the feast that we are going to observe in version 2.0, okay? Uh, the Passover is what started the whole thing, okay? The Passover was the celebration of whenever God and the death angel came through and killed all those people. But those who had the blood of the lamb over the door face, those who were living in the house, they were safe because the blood of the lamb was over them and the, the, God's judgment did not come on them. It was a beautiful story of redemption of God. Well, what happens in version 2.0 is Jesus isn't, we're not in a house and there's not blood over the lamb, but there's actually the blood of the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, dies on a cross and forgives us and covers us and therefore we are safe in him. 
It's a beautiful story. And Jesus is going to give us the rebranding version of, uh, of, of this, and we're going to celebrate it here in a few moments. And now before the Feast of the, the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, Jesus had been watching the clock. Jesus is very clear about He knew what was going on. Because there's four different times in the, in the Gospel of John, or three different times in the Gospel of John, in chapter 2, verse 4, 7, verse 30, 8, verse 20, that he said this, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But look at this next phrase. Jesus knew that the hour had come. He was fully aware of what was going on and what time it was in the world that, uh, for him to part out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world and loved them to the end. How are you following Jesus in reality or in theory? Because if you're following him in, in reality, here's two more questions for you. Do I lead like Jesus? Do I love like Jesus? If you think about it like this, if we're putting a trellis in the ground today and we're going to try to grow our vineyard and we're trying to multiply it into the next generations and, and if you know anything about the, 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 the vineyard culture, the, these vines have been for years and years and years cultivated and pruned and taken care of for generations, for decades, for centuries. And so these are precious things. And so as we're sitting there thinking about the next generation and we're going to put a stake in the ground, what are those two stakes that we got to make sure the first two stakes that we put in the ground? Am I leading like Jesus? Am I loving like Jesus? If we get those two, then we've got a pretty good trellis in work. Am I leading like Jesus? Do you lead like Jesus? Let's talk about them. Two fundamental, two foundationals. Um, stakes in the ground of whether or not we're following Jesus. Do you lead like Jesus? Now, I think we look at Jesus' life and we can see so many things about his life, the way he lived, the way he modeled, the way, the way he talked, the way he, the way he dealt with people. But here's one overarching thing you cannot escape from Jesus is Jesus served. It wasn't his, he was a leader because of his resume. He was a leader because of his diploma. He was a leader, no, he was a leader because he had this ability to win your heart through his service. It says in Mark 10, 10, 45, he said, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. See, Jesus couldn't give his life a ransom for many until he was, first of all, willing to come and to serve. So he was willing to come and to serve. Now we're going to talk about this meal in a few moments and we're going to talk about the, the cup representing the blood of Christ and the, the bread representing the body of Christ. And, and I just want to clear some things up because there's different views when it comes to communion, different views when it comes to the Lord's Supper. We do not practice or believe in the Eucharist. Okay, now you mind, I don't. But I don't believe in that because I, I cannot see how this grape value, grape juice, is going to become the blood of Christ. I can pray all day and all night about it, but it's still going to be grape value, grape juice, okay? Sorry. Um, and, and the bread, it's just a, a little sliver fingernail of bread that only leaves you wanting more. And so, I mean, you're just like, 
that it, the Eucharist actually talks about how this transubstantiation happens and it becomes the body and the blood of Christ. Not, not there, not on that page, okay? So then there's the other view that it's a sacrament, that if you do this, it will make you right with God. So you got to do it. If you don't do it, you're, you're going to be wrong with God. And I, we don't believe that either. We believe it's an ordinance. We, I, I teach, we practice that it's an ordinance. It's something that God has told us to do, so therefore we do it. And we're doing it to bring us back to center us on who and what Jesus did and how he lived his life. Now let's look at verse 2 because now we're going to get into the story. During the supper, what supper? The Passover supper, the 2.0 version communion, we're going to call it. When the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, don't miss that, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God, rose from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, now, right now, you can just hear a pin drop in the room. It was something that everyone else should have done, but nobody else wanted to touch anybody else's dirty feet. And there wasn't evidently a servant around to do it. So Jesus steps up and does what everyone else should do because that's the way Jesus operates. And he came to Simon Peter and he said, Lord, do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered, "Uh, what I'm doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And, And Jesus answered him, said, if you don't wash your feet, then you cannot share with me. And then Jesus, Peter says, give me a bath. Okay, bathe me from head to toe. When you look at this passage, we see something in Jesus. A, a, a servant heart that is incredible. That Jesus, first of all, he was without hesitation in, in his service. There's a need. There's, a, there's something that has to be done. I'm going to get up and I'm going to do it. It's not that I'm, I'm too big. I, hey, he could have played the God of the universe card. Hey, he could have played, hey, I'm about to die on a cross. How about you guys take one for, for the team now? You know, how about you guys do the dirty work? Because I'm about to do some dirty work. But no, 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 no. He gets up, he takes off a garment, he gets undressed, and he gets dressed in what the Jerusalem Bible calls a garments of a slave. So if it wasn't enough to be God of the universe, creating the God, creating the world, creating it all, and, and then coming down and putting on flesh and dwelling on man, if that wasn't enough, then let me just put on the garment of a servant and let me just wash your stinky, smelly toe jam. That's what he did. Put on an apron. And he washed the feet. Because here's the thing about Jesus. He learned something that I had to learn when I was 23, and it stuck with me. I had this pastor, this bigger church, come into my life and start pouring into my life. He kept coming to my church and pouring into me and giving me a lot of his time. Finally, one of those times I said, hey, you know, you know, why do you do this? I have so little to give you. I'm so wet behind the ears. I have nothing to offer you. Why are you doing this? And he talked about a man who had poured into him, who had made the statement to him that, that he made to me. And since that time, it is locked in on my soul. He said, Mike, if you're, if you're too big for the little jobs, you're too little for the big jobs. If you're too big for the little jobs, you're too little for the 
big jobs. And that's stuck with me. Jesus was big, but he became low. He was the king of the universe, but he became a slave. There was no hesitation. There was also no discrimination. Do you notice this? Look at this. We, we, I don't think it's an accident that John put this in here. Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already entered, put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, he's at the table too. He's got dirty feet too. And the incredible thing is, is that Jesus knew what he was about to do. And what does Jesus do? He got down on his knees and he washed the betrayer's feet. The very one who had already entered into his heart. Now, what does that mean? The devil had already entered into his heart. Now, think about that for just a moment. Before a person ever has an affair with another person, they have the affair of the heart first. You've seen people at your job, whenever they're checking out, they're looking for another place of employment, they kind of step back, and you as a supervisor, you look at them and go, they're gone. You can read it. Their heart's already gone. The heart's gone from the relationship. The heart's gone from the moment. The heart's gone from that situation. Judas, he wasn't there. But what does Jesus do? He washes his feet. And not only that, that wasn't enough. Peter comes on the scene. And you know Peter, he's not a perfect little sheep either. He denies him three times in one night. Not over the course of a lifetime. He denies him three times in one night. What does Jesus do? He washes his feet. See, the the thing about Jesus that no other faith, no other religion, no other entity, no no other global faith leader offers is he offers this incredible sense of service and humility where he's willing to get as low as he needs to go without discrimination, without hesitation to serve. Do you... Lead like Jesus. I thank God for the 350 people who make up the volunteer ministers of Grace Point Church every week. Whether it's Wednesday night with our students or it's Sunday morning happening right now with your little rugrats and it's happening right now and they're loving and they're serving and they're teaching or it's special needs families who have been able to come back to church for the first time in decades because there was not a church with a special needs ministry for them to be able to take their kid to and feel safe about. I thank God for the 350 people who make up that volunteer minister base you, you might think, okay, but Mike, you're, you're, you're so important. Listen, I'm paid to be good. They're good for nothing. Think about it. They're good because God's in their heart and their heart's set on. That's a beautiful thing. They're wanting to be like Jesus because they just want to be like Jesus. Thank God for them. But you know what? In John 12, 26 says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. What's this whole statement been about? This whole series been about follow me, follow me, follow me. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him.
The greatest reward will not be my patting you on the back or somebody high-fiving you in the hall, though we need to do that, encourage one another while it's still called today, Hebrews 3.13. But what the greatest reward will be will be the honor given to you by the Father. Are you going to live and serve and do ministry for that? Listen, one of the stakes of a trellis in your life needs to be Am I serving like Jesus? Am I leading like Jesus as a servant leader? Number two trellis, number stake in the ground, if you will, is to love like Jesus. This whole conversation is built around him ramping up. I love Jesus in his teaching and his ability to communicate, but I love it that Jesus brings this life lesson into the mix of it. He brings this life lesson of, uh, of, and listen, I'm not only going to tell you what to do, but now I'm going to get dirty and show you what to do. I'm going to get down on my hands and knees, and I'm going to wash your dirty feet. And then I'm going to say, I want you to do the same. But, but the thing is, is that the whole, and, and what happens in the next verses, and we don't have time to read them all, but, uh, but the verses that follow, probably the next, uh, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 verses that follow, it's the disciples going, what just happened? You know, what's going on? How, how'd this happen? You know, and what are you doing? And, and, and you know, I'm not going to betray you. Who's going to betray you? There's, it's like they're in this, they're missing the point. God is trying to say, hey, you know, this is a great thing, and this is what love looks like. And they're, they're like, but I'm not going to betray you. And Why are you doing that, Jesus? And you can't do this. It's like, it's like have you ever been in an argument with your spouse? I know I have. Uh, and, and it's like, they're, they're, they're just saying, hey, would you just love me? And I'm like going, but I loved you last week. And, and I listened to you the other day. And when you get in this argument, it's like, no, you're missing. This is real life stories, okay? Uh, so real life stories of a preacher. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm literally thinking of an argument that Lori and I had recently. And it's like, my, 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 my objective was to win the point and to get the point across of all these ways that I showed her I loved her. And she was just like, would you just listen to my heart? Just listen to my heart. Don't, don't quit trying to get the point. Just listen to my heart. What, what does this love thing look like? Because I tell you what, it's a, it's a hot mess in America. It's a dumpster fire. This drunk love stuff, you know, you know, you 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 were drunk love once, once or twice. I mean, you know, the drunk love, you're kind of like, I, I can't see anything but that person. They're incredible. They're beautiful. They're wonderful. They're Prince Charming. They're Princess Leia, whatever it is. And you just can't get enough of them. And your parents are like going, you're love drunk. Or your friends are saying, you're love drunk. Get your, get your eyes, think with your head, not just your heart. That, that, that's not what the love I'm talking about. It's neither the love that I'm talking about. It's this kind of hold out kind of love. Okay, I tell you what, I'm going to see if they love me and then I will love them. I'm going to hold out. There's this careless love. I'm just going to love everyone. I'm going to get myself away. I'm going to get hurt a thousand times and I'm never going to learn my lesson. It's not that kind of love either. It's not the mutuality love where it's like, okay, I give a little, they give a little. I give a little. No, no, no. If you notice the love that Jesus shows us, one, it's love is is endless. Love doesn't have... 
Oh, boundaries are good in broken, messed up. I'm not saying don't love without boundaries, okay? Boundaries are healthy. That's another conversation in the message of the day. But what I'm talking about here is that love should be endless. Chapter 13, verse 1, don't miss what he said there. He said, uh, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He, He... to the very end of time, to the very end of life. He didn't stop loving them. See, the beauty of God's love is there's nothing I can do to make God love me any more, and there's nothing, thank God, I can do to make Him love me any less. He just loves me. He just loves me. And He loves you. It's endless. But notice this, it's also dangerous. And I don't mean dangerous in the crazy kind of love and all that kind of stuff. But loving dangerously, if you look at, if you look at verse, verse 7, um, or verse 6 here, it's a, and he came to Simon Peter and all, all that. He says, Lord, do, do you wash my feet? And, and then Jesus said to him, verse 7, he said, Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now. When I talk about loving dangerously, this is vulnerability love. Vulnerability love is where I'm going to love you and I'm going to extend myself to you, not even knowing if you're going to love me back. I'm going to love you fully and completely. I'm going to be an open book. I'm going to be open with my life. And I hope you love me, but I don't know that you will. That's scary. That's why I call it dangerous. It's exactly how Jesus loved us. He was showing love to them. They're not even understanding it. They're not even getting it. In fact, they're not even getting the point of it. But he keeps loving them. It's exactly what it talks about in Romans 5, verse 8, when he said he loved us, he gave himself for us, in that while we were still sinners, he didn't wait for us to understand it. He didn't wait for us to, if you'll just understand all that I'm going to do, then I will finally love you. If you just live up to my standard, then I will finally love you. No, he died for us while we were still sinners. He loved us in a very dangerous manner, very vulnerable manner. You know what he does? This is where it comes back to you and me, you and I. He said, I want you to love each other the same way. Dangerously, endlessly, I want you to love that person the same way. Because finally when he got back on point, because they were all diverting all over the place, Verse 31, verse 33, he says, little children. I don't think he was patronizing them, but maybe he was, tongue in cheek, I don't know. But he kind of calls them back. I think he calls them back in a loving manner. And he says, hey, you're my, you're my, you're my children, little children. Yet in a little while, in a little while I'm with you, and you will seek me just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, that where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he says this. Put a stake in the ground, a new commandment. I give you that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Now notice this. He says it again three times in two verses. He says something of a one another. You realize that there are 57 one another's in Scripture. Do you realize of the 57 one another's, 14 of them are the command to love one another? It's not something he accidentally slipped out of his mouth. He goes on and he says this. By this all people will know that you are my Disciples, if you have love for one another. The same kind of love that he just modeled. Endless, dangerous, vulnerable love. Is the kind of love that really, really does mark a Christian. That really, really does mark a follower of Christ. Do you lead and do you love like Jesus? Because you and I say, oh, you know, I've taken the catechisms classes and I've taken the, the courses and I've done the Bible studies and I've been enrolled in everything and I've gone to seminary or whatever. And I, and I could pass the test. But the real test of a real follower of Christ, listen to what Brennan Manning said in his book, Of a, of a Child. He said, Rabbi, speaking of Jesus, implores Don't you understand that discipleship is not about being right, about being perfect, about being efficient? It's all about the way you live. It's all about the way you live with each other. Let me say it again. It's all about the way you live with each other. In every encounter, we either give life or we drain life. There's no neutral exchange. We enhance human dignity or we diminish it. The success of or failure of a given day is measured by the quality of our interest and compassion, love, toward those around us. You really want to measure your faith? Measure your love. You really want to measure your love? Is it endless? Is it dangerous? Or is it conditional? Is it some fabrication of some kind of form of love that this society promotes? If you're going to put some stakes in the ground today to grow your faith, lead like Jesus, love like Jesus, and watch your faith grow and make a difference. And it was not long, within 48 hours, 24, 48 hours after this, that Jesus will go to the cross and demonstrate love. Would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today, and you have been following Jesus in theory, but not in reality. Then why not today? You flip the switch. You own your faith. You give your life completely to Jesus. Right where you're at. You don't need me to pray for you. You don't need me to pray over you. You don't need my words. You just tell Jesus in your own words, Jesus, I give my life to you now. I don't even know what that fully means, but Lord, if I can just learn to lead like you and love like you, Lord, I'll, I can start 
walking with you and following you. Lord, you know the hearts of everyone in this room. Would you help that person who needs a relationship with you, who's been playing a game, to wake up this moment? Some of you in this room, you're followers of Jesus, but you've been arguing with God over the point and you've been missing his heart. That person wronged me. That person did this. God, you got to get right with it. You got to get it back with them. Would you find it in yourself to forgive them today? Maybe it's something that you've been craving and longing for that's come greater than your craving and longing for God. Would you just bring that to him now?